Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morris and Forster, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Hello, my name is David Lynn, and I'm a partner at Morrison & Forster, where I serve as co-chair of the firm's corporate finance capital markets practice. And I'm very pleased to be joined today by two of my colleagues, Stacey Sprinkle, who's a partner at Morrison & Forster and leads the firm's global ethics and compliance practice, and who serves as a member of the firm's global anti-corruption team. And James Kukios, who's a partner at Morrison & Forster and serves as co-chair of the firm's securities litigation enforcement and white-collar defense group and also serves as co-head of the FCPA and Global Anti-Corruption Practice. Today, an effective ethics and compliance program is more important than ever for corporations, and the board of directors plays a critical role in that area. We're going to discuss the board's role in overseeing the ethics and compliance function at companies. First off, my question is, what is the role that boards do play as it relates to corporate and ethics compliance programs. Thanks, Dave. Well, I think about this from a couple of different perspectives. First, what's the Department of Justice's expectation regarding the role of a board in a company's compliance program? And second, what is the director's duty of oversight as it relates to compliance program under Caremark and its progeny? In other words, under what circumstances could a director face personal liability related to oversight or lack of oversight of a company's compliance program? I would say that from either perspective, the board's role really is one of oversight, specifically overseeing the company and its efforts to identify and manage risk, and in making sure systems are set up to ensure compliance. So I'll dig into this a little bit. The U.S. sentencing guidelines say that the organization's governing authority, which is defined as the board of directors or the highest level governing body, shall be, and this is a quote, knowledgeable about the content and operation of the compliance and ethics program and shall exercise reasonable oversight with respect to the implementation and effectiveness of the compliance and ethics program. We have more insight into what the Department of Justice thinks in terms of how they evaluate corporate compliance programs. Um, There's a document called DOJ Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs, which is meant to assist prosecutors in making informed decisions regarding the effectiveness of a compliance program in the context of a criminal investigation. And this is really used for purposes of determining how to treat the corporation, for example, how to resolve a criminal investigation, how much a penalty should be, if any, and whether to impose compliance obligations such as a monitor in connection with a resolution. And so in that document, there are several questions listed and different kind of background in terms of how the the department would evaluate the effectiveness of a compliance program. Some relate to the board. So the board of directors, the company's top leaders, are seen as setting the tone for the rest of the company. And of course, they ask the question, has the board fulfilled its oversight role? Specifically, have the board of directors held executive or private sessions with compliance and other control functions? And what types of information have the board of directors and senior management examined in their exercise of oversight in the area in which misconduct occurred, whatever the misconduct is that that's before the Department of Justice. So thinking about it from that perspective, it really is a question of oversight. It's very similar in connection with the risk of personal liability um, under the Caremark standard. And I was going to just talk briefly about a 2019 case from the Delaware Supreme Court that I think is instructive. It's the Marchand versus Barnhill case, which is really known as the Bluebell case. 
that case actually arose out of some pretty tragic circumstances. There was a listeria outbreak in a manufacturing facility that resulted in the death of several people. And a shareholder brought a derivative suit alleging that the board breached its loyalty under Caremark. Specifically, the allegations were that food safety was of obvious importance to Bluebell, an ice cream company. But despite this, the board failed to implement any system to monitor the company's food safety compliance programs and was thus unaware of any of the problems that was facing until it was too late. This is a really fact-specific case, and the plaintiff had alleged that there was no effort to implement any kind of system of mandatory reporting to the board and that the board left company's response to the issue entirely to management. But I want to underscore that in this case, there was primarily reliance on board minutes. And unfortunately, there was no mention of any activities at all relating to board oversight, reporting, monitoring of food safety compliance. And that's an important point that we'll come back to because oversight efforts are one thing, they're essential, but they need to be documented. So the court held in that case that under Caremark, in order to satisfy a duty of loyalty, directors must make a good faith effort to implement an oversight system with regard to company's legal compliance and then monitor it. And the court called out the following allegations as being instructive. No board committee um, existed that addressed food safety. There were no regular processes or protocols that required management to keep the board apprived of food safety compliance practices, risks, reports, etc. There was no schedule for the board to consider food safety compliance on a regular basis. There was a key period leading up to the deaths of customers where management received reports um, and the board minutes did not demonstrate that those reports were subsequently disclosed to the board. And the board minutes are devoid of any suggestion that there was any regular discussion of food safety issues, which again was considered the company's key compliance issue. So based on these allegations, the court found that the complaint supported an inference that no system of board-level compliance monitoring and reporting at Bluebell existed. Of course, this is a really high standard for a plaintiff to, um, to meet, but I do think it's really instructive in terms of what the Bluebell case does tell us about where director's responsibility is as it relates to compliance and a few key takeaways which we'll dig into. Our first, directors need to be aware of the key compliance risks facing a company. Second, it's not enough for a company to have a compliance program. The board has to provide some level of oversight over that program, which means receiving reports on its operation and monitoring its functioning. And third, you know, document, document, document. Um, you've got to be able to establish that those things were happening. And if your minutes and other, other documentation don't reflect that the board has been exercising oversight over compliance, that's a problem. And so do the work, but also make sure that it's documented. Now, obviously, quite a few people are involved in the ethics and compliance function. What does the reporting structure look like going from the chief compliance officer up to the board of directors? Thanks, Dave. Uh, Before I answer that directly, I'll contrast it with the ordinary day-to-day reporting structure for a chief compliance officer. And that can take on any number of forms. It can be a chief compliance officer reporting to a general counsel, or it could be a standalone position that reports to the CEO. And when it comes to, uh, Stacy mentioned DOJ expectations, DOJ doesn't really take many um, positions as to that. For, for DOJ, that's kind of a up to the company on how to decide to organize its management reporting function. 
some agencies do want that to look a specific way. For example, the Health and Human Services wants a standalone chief compliance officer. But when it comes to DOJ, they don't really care. It's very different, though, when you talk about the chief compliance officer's reporting lines to the board of directors. There, both the sentencing guidelines and the DOJ evaluation of corporate compliance programs that Stacy mentioned are very clear that the chief compliance officer must have direct access to the governing authority or an appropriate subgroup of the governing authority. That's how it's described in sentencing guidelines. So in other words, it has to be to a board or the equivalent of a board if a company doesn't have one or to a subgroup of that governing authority, such as an audit committee or a compliance committee. And Stacy mentioned that um, the DOJ evaluation document asks a series of questions. And one of those is, do the compliance and relevant control functions have direct reporting lines to anyone on the board of directors and or audit committee? And it's funny, uh, DOJ phrases those as questions to ask, to, to, to be asked, but there clearly is a um, both a uh, functional will ask these questions, but will also imply to you what we think the answer should be. And the answer very clearly for DOJ is that that um, chief compliance officer needs to be able to report directly to the board of directors without any intermediation by management. So with that established, um, we know enforcement agencies expect this direct line of report. How often should a chief compliance officer report to the board? What is the cadence of that reporting? Well, the answer overall is the words that are used in the Caremark case and also uh, by DOJ, which actually incorporates Caremark into their guidance to prosecutors, is that there has to be some mechanism that's reasonably designed to provide to, um, to the board itself timely and accurate information. So that, that's the key phrase, timely and accurate information. Um, and uh, to take it one step further, the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines adds that the compliance function shall report periodically to the board. Um, both of those um, are standards. They're not uh, dictating a specific cadence, um, whatever is timely and appropriate for a particular company or some form of periodic reporting. Um, but it kind of leaves it open to companies to decide based on their risk profile and their structure how often that should happen. Now, what we see is that typically that is going to be at least quarterly reporting um, by the compliance function to either the board or the, the relevant board committee, and maybe one additional annual report as well. And in fact, there was a 2018 survey conducted by the Society of Corporate Compliance and Healthcare Compliance Association, and two-thirds of the respondents said that their chief compliance officer meets with the board or a board committee four or more times a year. So I'd say that's probably the default rule is that quarterly reports from the chief compliance officer to the board or the board committee is a kind of a baseline standard cadence. But of course, life is messy and not all problems uh, happen at the quarter uh, mark of every year. Um, and so there's also got to be a mechanism that when things do pop up, timely and appropriate information can still get to the board, even if it's off schedule. And that leads to what most companies do is they have some kind of ad hoc escalation uh, mechanism so that if problems do arise that don't fall within the quarterly um, structure of that regular cadence, 
um, there is some mechanism to raise significant concerns to the board um, when those occur. And typically what happens is companies will create a, a set of escalation protocols um, where they will discuss what types of matters need to be raised to the board on a more ad hoc basis than that periodic reports. And so, for example, many of these um, protocols will say uh, that potentially material violations of criminal law or material omissions or misstatements in the company's financial reporting or other issues that might be material to the company's business um, should be reported, um, even if it doesn't happen on that quarterly basis. So, for example, if we went back to Stacy's example of the Bluebell case, you know, when there starts to be reports of people dying or becoming sickened by listeria traced to your product, um, that obviously shouldn't wait three months to get to the board. That's the type of thing that in an escalation protocol should be raised to the board on an ad hoc basis. So we've covered the reporting line from the compliance function of the board, and we've talked about the cadence of how often the compliance function should report to the board. The next question then is what should be the content of those reports? And this is one of those classic Goldilocks problems. You want to make sure that the board has enough information to exercise its oversight authority, but not too much that it's bogged down in details, not too little, not too much, just right. And the Caremark standard is pretty open in that regard. It requires that appropriate information will come to the board's attention in a timely manner. And so that leaves some play for a company and a board to decide what is the appropriate information. And it really depends on the company itself and the specific circumstances of what is being addressed. A couple things. Um, that I think are interesting that can be gleaned from the Bluebell case, for example, that Stacy raised, is that in that case, the court said that red and yellow flags in important reports should have been raised to the board's attention. Um, There's a lot of focus in that case that uh, the board was provided with perhaps an overly rosy picture of the food safety situation at the company. And when the red and yellow flags were raised to management, they did not then in turn raise them to the board. Um, but uh, also reflecting the, the other side of the Goldilocks problem, the Caremark case does recognize that the duty to act in good faith, to be informed, cannot be thought to require directors to possess detailed information about all aspects of the operation of the enterprise. And that's a direct quote. The case goes on to say that such a requirement would simply be inconsistent with the scale and scope of efficient organization size in this technological age. And that was actually written in 1996, uh, before iPhones, before social media, before the proliferation of data that we've seen in the last five to 10 years. And so of course that challenge of finding the right amount of information to the board has grown exponentially since Caremark came down in 1996. The, so overall, uh, if I were to sum it up, the content of the report to the board should be designed to help the board understand the big picture and how this specific challenge or this specific issue fits into that big picture without going too much into the weeds such that the board can't process that information. Uh, give them the information that they need and only the information they need 
to be able to make an effective decision and exercise effective oversight under the circumstances. How can a board assure itself that it is getting the right information at the right time? Right. Isn't that the question? Well, there's a few things to consider. First of all, the board should really focus on the compliance function itself and making sure that there are sufficient resources and autonomy in order that the compliance program can operate effectively. The board can also evaluate processes and procedures um, or bring in external experts to help with evaluation of processes and procedures, really to make sure that there's a functioning of the compliance system, the compliance program, but also to ensure that information will get to the chief compliance officer and thus to the board. So for example, um, as James mentioned, escalation protocols. Does the company have effective reporting mechanisms and escalation protocols such that information will appropriately be raised to the chief chief compliance officer and to the board. Um, Does the company have a sufficient training program that will enable employees to spot and report issues? It's also important for the board to understand the company's key risks. And this was a focus of of the Bluebell case, of course, because food safety in that instance was really the company's key risk. Evaluate whether the information that the board is receiving is appropriate to those risks and focused on those risks, and whether there are plans in place to mitigate the risks that have been identified. And finally, you know, consult outside counsel and other experts when needed, including where appropriate, to validate risk assessment activities or to evaluate program effectiveness. Those are some of the things that the board can do to really assure itself that it is, in fact, getting the right information, the level of information that it should be getting, and on the appropriate cadence or on, on a timely basis in the instance of, of ad hoc issues, as, as James discussed. How can the board positively impact the compliance function? Several ways. One, and Stacy raised this at the beginning, is to set the appropriate tone at the top to make sure that everybody in the company knows that the board cares about compliance um, and to send that message throughout the organization. Number two, and related to that, is the board can ensure that uh, the company has the right processes and procedures in place including that the compliance function has sufficient resources and autonomy. In other words, um, send that message that we're going to invest money in compliance, but also to make sure that the compliance function has what it needs to be effective, have that be part of the board's oversight. Number three, monitor the outcome of issues that are raised. When an important issue is raised to the board or the board committee, The board committee shouldn't just have that be a one-time occurrence. It should follow through and make sure that it tracks exactly how that specific issue is being dealt with. And if it's a longer, more systematic problem, how the root cause is being addressed as well so that similar issues will not pop up again or at least will be mitigated. And finally, I'm sure there's many other things a board can do, but for for our purposes today, I think one of the most important things is to provide feedback. When the it shouldn't just be a one-way line of communication where the compliance officer is reporting to the board. The board should also provide feedback to the compliance officer and the compliance function. I mean, and if you step back, it's a, that's really helpful because the board approaches issues from a different perspective than management does. Whereas management is looking from inside the company outward, 
the board is really looking from outside the company inward. And that's a very valuable and different perspective. Instead of trying to put out day-to-day fires, it can, uh, the board can take a more holistic view, see maybe what other companies are doing, and think about the big picture in a way that maybe a compliance officer can't because they're bogged down in so many details and uh, the day-to-day challenges of running a compliance program. And so bringing that broader approach to, to risk and to challenges can really assist the company in the longer term. What are the key takeaways that directors should consider when looking at their ethics and compliance programs? Well, I'll give you three sort of key tips for the board. Uh, First, be an active participant in the process. Ask questions of your chief compliance officer, of your outside counsel if they're in front of you, of management, et cetera. If there are key risk areas that you don't feel that you understand well enough to ask those meaningful questions, reach out to the GC, reach out to the board chair, ask for a training session on the topic, Um, but just make sure that you're positioned to be able to be an active participant. Relatedly, Tip number two is make sure you understand the company's risks and ensure that the compliance program is actually evolving as the company's risks evolve because, you know, the risk profile of any given company is not static. It evolves and changes over time with the business. And then third, and this really is coming full circle to sort of where we where we started with the Bluebell case. It's really important that you document your efforts. It's important to demonstrate that you fulfilled the requirements under the Caremark standard. And having good documentation will better position the company to be able to avail itself of the Department of Justice's ability to exercise its discretion if the company is ever sitting in front of them in a, in a criminal matter. And so um, document, document, document. That's, that's where I'll leave things, Dave. Great. Well, thank you, Stacy, and thank you, James, for all of your insights today around ethics and compliance at companies. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.